0: My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk podcast. I am here with Jeff Corwin, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things today, uh, with somewhat of a focus on the role of media in conservation. Uh, and there's three things that that Jeff and I. Re- have in common that hopefully will provide kind of a common thread for this episode. Uh, The first thing is that many, many years ago, Jeff and I actually took uh, herpetology together back in the 90s at the University of Massachusetts, and that's where we uh, first met. Uh, The second thing I would say is despite both of us working on a variety of Projects in a variety of places with a variety of species. We both are just snake uh, absolute fanatics. Um, And, you know, the last thing that I want to mention was really more of a story, something that I wanted to credit Jeff with. Uh, So, and it goes back to those days of being at the University of Massachusetts and Um, I had the opportunity, and I credit Jeff with this, I had the opportunity to interact with my first live Gila monster. And uh, Jeff had this animal, I'm assuming as a pet at the time, and he ended up bringing it into uh, class one day. And we had it walking around on top of one of the lab tables. And ever since then, Gila monsters have just been One of the most fascinating animals to me. Uh, you know, I've been uh, to see them in the wild now many times. Uh, I've been out with researchers working on them. uh, And I actually have a Gila monster that resides in my office today. Uh, Yeah, I guess one other thing we have in common, Jeff, is that, again, we both love the concept of linking media to conservation. I'm excited to talk about that today. So welcome to the podcast, Jeff.
1: How are you? Thanks very much. I'm very excited to be here with you, Chris. And actually I should qualify. It wasn't just, first of all, so they, those animals belong to a, an NGO that did outreach. And I worked with this program to, um, to do talks on, on the environment with a big focus on reptiles. So it was an incredible collection of, of animals, but it wasn't just a, um, a Gila monster. It was also a beaded lizard too. We had both mm-hmm. uh, of those in for and for our graduate class on herpetology. Yep,
0: yep, that was great. Beaded lizards are are amazing animals on their own. Earth. For some reason, I only remember the Gila monster, but I'm sure we saw the beaded lizard. It just was. It's getting to be so long ago now. We both have a, a little bit of gray in our hair. Yeah, and these they're days. still
1: alive. They're still with that program. And I would say that beaded lizard. Is I would say that that Gila monster is probably 80 years old, 90 years old, and still wow. going strong. Wow, that's amazing! Huh. That's great. So, I've known that I've known both those animals since I was eight. <laughs> <When> <laughs> that's I great. With this program.
0: Well, I'm excited to hear a little bit about this histi- history, but before we do that, I like to ask all of my guests to, you know, you can obviously introduce yourself better than I can. Um, and so uh, we'll get into kind of your past and how you ended up where you are today, but, but uh, who are you? You know, what do you do for a living? Where are you sitting these days? Uh, those
1: types of things. Well, I still live in Massachusetts. It's my home. I'm a coastal kid, and I live in a little island uh, with my family. And I'm a wildlife biologist, and I went, you know, educated locally, went to Bridgewater State for undergraduate school, and as you know, UMass Amherst for graduate school. But I always had a passion for rainforests. So when I was a very young lad, I had a chance to explore rainforests. In my adolescent and that kind of was my my exploration light bulb clicking on and um, that for me was the gateway into adventure and of course always love snakes today i produce and create and host and develop documentary tv series and documentaries so i'm right now in my probably 12th television series which I've been doing for over 25, 26 years, pushing 30 years. So my goal is to connect my television audience to the natural world to inspire a sense of stewardship and a stronger connection to nature. You mentioned, you know, having these
0: experiences when you're relatively young that were kind of your, your gateway. Um, so, so was this interest in snakes and an interest in ecosystems like rainforests and wildlife in general? Is that something that you had ever since you were a really young kid? Or is it something that kind of developed a little bit later based on,
1: say, some of these rainforest experiences? Ever since I was, uh, my earliest memories of being five or six years old catching snakes started, I had a collection of snakes, uh, you know, probably about 10 or 11, right up until um, television career started. And I always loved to to kind of engage folks. I did a lot of traveling around to schools uh, and actually made it my career. Uh, to do everything from camps to schools to universities, providing lectures on reptiles and then got very active in wildlife rehabilitation with a number of regional organizations. And it was when I was about 16 years old that a, a scientist studying rainforest took me to a rainforest in Central America. And that was kind of like the epiphany for me, but my most vivid snake memory, I was probably about six years old in my grandparents' backyard, found my first garter snake and was enthralled by this creature. And you know, these are the ultimate species of creatures of habit. So was able to learn and study and observe this creature for about two years and up till I was about eight years old. And And for me, the day I became a naturalist is the day I found that garter snake And the day I became a conservationist or focused on those issues, I was about eight years old. And the next door neighbor to my grandparents saw me with the snake and came over and decapitated it with the spade right there. And that to me was such a visceral visceral memory. And and that was the day I realized that people, uh, good people made bad decisions because they lacked good information. Uh, and that really sent me on my course as I would say, as a naturalist wanting to educate people and snakes have always been a part of that. And for my very first TV series uh, going wild on Disney channel, the, 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 tenor of that series, the heartbeat of that series, snakes, reptiles, and and then eventually as the series grew, they wanted to expand it. And then as I moved on to previous uh, to the next series, like on Animal Planet, I would bring that herpetological ethos with me.
0: Yeah. Well, so how, so how did you mention your grandparents? How, how did was it a supportive environment for you? Say, like your family when you were young, were they pushing you to explore these interests, or was it something that you were facing? You know, some of these misconceptions even at home.
1: No, my. Family was very, very supportive. My dad uh, is a retired Boston police officer. My mom is a retired nurse. Uh, my grandmother, she actually was a bird rehabber on the side. Um, you know, kind of the neighborhood lady who took care of the chickadees or took care of the sparrows or whatever someone rescued. That was kind of her passion. She loved birds, and my grandfather loved loved birds. My dad is a, a passionate um, amateur uh uh ornithologist twitcher and um he knows all about birds it's it's one of his big interests so they were very supportive in that and they allowed me at a very young age to start you know building a collection of reptiles under the premise that I would have a reason to not just to have them to have them but I would use them to do these lecture programs to try to inspire a better understanding of reptiles And then that led on to other creatures and other work that I did with uh, the wildlife rehab stuff, which I still work with that organization to this very day. Yeah, well,
0: so it's not even that they were indifferent. And that's what, you know, you hear with a lot of people. It's actually that they helped promote and, and, you know, kind of push you towards doing something with these animals if you want to keep them. That's great.
1: Yeah, they were very supportive of it. I think every parent has that that moment where they're done, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I was probably 16 or 17 and my mom was like, I'm, you know, I'm done <laughs> having a house that smells like uh, <laughs> a, a serpentarium. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but, uh, but at that time I was working with, with like a local science center, again, an organization I still work with and w- could have my animals there at a wildlife rehab center, the New England wildlife center. In Hingham, Massachusetts, I was able to keep my collection there. And, um, but yeah, so now I have nothing. I just, well, we have two dogs, two cats and a bearded dragon and, uh, and, um, we're taking care of a Eastern, uh, box turtle, but you know, those are my, my daughter's helping with that. But we, those days are, are, are behind me now.
0: Well, it's never it's never too late, Jeff, to get another snake. So it, it is too late. My wife is looking right now. It's very
1: she's saying it's very too late. It's if it if if it was a disease, it would be stage four. It's, those days are behind me. Okay, great. So you so you growing up
0: in Massachusetts, you have this interest in in snakes, and then you go off to college. You went to Bridgewater, you said, is that right? Mm -hmm. And you knew at that time that you were interested in being a naturalist, being a wildlife biologist. So did you end up going
1: there to study, say, ecology or zoology, or what did you focus on there? I did. And my goal, I wanted to live in a rainforest and study rainforest and focus on rainforest conservation. So I was very lucky. Um, You know, I was not a a very good student in high school, but I was a pretty solid student in college, especially when when I found kind of my community and a a great professor uh dr john jehoda who was the head zoologist um at bridgewater state and uh you know he would take me out there to do collections he took me to ecuador he took so it was uh you know uh, i took him to my field site at that time i was so it was interesting at the time by the time i was halfway through college i was a full-time outfitter in central america leading Trips for helping to, you know, outfit trips for researchers, you know, being a a rainforest guide. So I was actually working, and that took me right into, you know, graduate school. But uh, I studied. I got my undergraduate degrees in biology, bachelors in biology, and a bachelors in anthropology. And also a big fascination human culture, and the intersection of communities and human communities and wild communities. And I felt having a a, a a a good pension for culture and the and, and to, to understand how to learn about culture would be important to my work.
0: You know, that's one
1: thing I remember
0: when you were at UMass in graduate school. I, I remember that that you had a number of things going on at the same time. I don't remember exactly what they were, but you were working on multiple projects, whereas most of us were. We're really focused on the one thing, the one project we're working on there. So, I mean, you even had that issue. Uh, It's not a bad issue. It's a good issue. But you had that issue even as an undergrad, it sounds like.
1: Yeah. As a grad student, as an undergraduate, I created a a foundation. Um, I had it back in the in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s was when Rainforest started to become uh, a big uh, talking point, big cultural focus. Rainforest conservation, and I was lucky to be kind of team up with the group of folks at that time who were starting that. So uh, went, went got invited to go to Princeton, and then from there I got invited to go to to uh, do a project with the United Nations uh, um, that focused on rainforest conservation. And I created this NGO that was all about rainforest and helped to create. Uh, one of the first national parks in Paraguay um, that focused on rainforest, and that was kind of my mission. Was had this television documentary career? Did that? If that had not germinate, I would be. That's where I would be probably working for an NGO, focusing on wildlife and and habitat conservation with neo, neotropical species, especially with bats and things like that. So um, I had that and that NGO was right up into my graduate school. Um, so I had a board of directors I had to manage and try to raise money, which I had done pretty good at the time. And, um, and then during that time, actually my, in between undergraduate and graduate school, I got featured in a documentary series that was, uh, hosted by Dr. Uh, Robert Ballard, who is a very well-known explorer discovered the Titanic and and uh, he took a shining to my interest and featured me in this rainforest uh, type live program called the Jason Project, which had a partnership with National Geographic and EDS. So uh, that w- w- clicked on my documentary light bulb. Then I was like, forget this living in a rainforest. I want to have a TV show. So <laughs> I came up with this idea and, and spent, uh, it, a couple of years trying to make it happen, got really close and was kind of like, "Oh, well, it wasn't happening. What do I do now? I guess I got to go, go to graduate school. And it was really towards the two thirds into graduate school that suddenly, you know, one of these things that I had sent out, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a beta tape got viewed by this person who passed it on this person. And it was Disney Channel called me up and said, hey, do you still, are you still interested in making your your nature show do you you want to do that that turned into a pilot turned into a meeting which turned into a pilot which turned into a relaunch of disney channel and a really nice three-year run with them before i moved on to the next project
0: ah interesting so that's uh so we've learned about how you ended up getting into snakes and wildlife and rainforests but um so that was kind of your introduction to uh this jason project as, as you called it that your introduction to media and TV and documentary making and and that's was so it sounds like that was a huge inflection
1: point in your career. It was. And to be able to work with this, it was a very, very um robust production crew because they would deliver this is long before cell phones and all the technology we have today, they would deliver these live broadcasts from this research site. And they would bring in these well-known research scientists, which I was not, um, but I, they wanted this. Ex, they felt they needed like an expedition naturalist to talk about wildlife. So I would literally go collect animals the night before and then have them for those live feeds. And it and it went out to thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids throughout the United States. It would feed directly into their classroom, and it would get compiled into a Nat Geo broadcast and, and that I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to use the power, the vehicle of television as a way or documentaries, this medium to share my passion for nature, my interest in conservation and a focus on the creatures that were very important to me. But that was the stepping stone for me. That was kind of the catalyst that said, I, I'm not gonna, i not going to, I also was having, you know, like I think we talked about this before, just kind of having a an epiphany that I did not want to do a long-term research project. I did not want to be a specialist. I was a generalist. I was your classic naturalist. Um, you know, I was a Renaissance nature guy. I didn't want to be this myopic researcher, which is so important, but that was, if anything, would have been my kryptonite. My talent was to work with someone who does Incredibly complex, important research, and distill that in a an an edible, entertaining way for the audience to better understand that, and that's kind of been the model of my career for almost three decades. Well, you've certainly been
0: arguably one of the best people of our time uh, in doing that. So I think you you found your calling, and and it's pretty amazing that that you uh, you were able to to you know push your career in that. Uh, direction. I think we're all the the better for it. So, uh, talking about media and talking about some of these TV shows. So the, it sounds like the real, the first kind of big production that you were involved in was the the Disney Channel, the the Going Wild with with Jeff Corwin. Is that mm-hmm. remember, right? And, and that was
1: the big one. Yeah.
0: And how and it did. I, I was just going to ask you how what was the genesis of that? I mean, it sounds like it was an idea you had that you've been working on for years. But but what what you know? How, how did you come up with that
1: idea for the TV show you wanted to start? So I you know um, I you know I, I had all these working titles, you know, Wild Adventures or Expedition, whatever. It was called Discovery. You know things that probably you couldn't even get now. They're all locked up uh, URLs now, but. Um, so I would do anything I could to try to, um, get a connection to media, to television, to radio. So I was doing, I started, it wasn't happening. I wasn't, I actually met with like this, like a a pretty well-known regional public television, uh, producer, and had a meeting. I was so excited. Like I'd convinced myself, this is it. This is your break. You're going to get in there. And he literally looked at me and said, you know, I know a lot about this business. I'm just going to tell you just to make your life easier. You don't have what it's take. He literally, I'm like, I thought that only, they only said that in the movie, (laughs) you know, to the girl (laughs) at the soda jerk fountain. And I'm like, and I was like, I'm going to show you that I can. And I actually bumped into that person years later. And he was like, "Oh, do you remember me?" I'm like, "Oh, I have not forgotten you." And this was <laughs> well into Animal Planet days. But um, so I was actually doing voiceovers for radio shows. I was doing anything I could. I was doing acting. Um, actually, I got into a movie um, uh, that was being shot in Central America. Um, uh, I could was doing anything I could to have some level of learning about production. And editing, had a camera, all these, anything I could do to learn about the business, and so doing some voiceover work for a studio, because I was always good at doing all these different types of voices, and accents, and things like that. And uh, uh, someone said, "Oh, I, you know, I have a TV show on HBO." This person, I was doing voiceover for this other project. He said, "I'm going to hook you up with my producer," and finally got this guy to take a call and they had an interest in it and they took my video and passed it on to Disney. And then Disney had a big changeover. They wanted to have a, a different type of programming. And I was, I was one of the first talent in one of the first, um, actors or whatever you'd want to call it, uh, what was commonly known as talent in the business. Not that I necessarily have it or don't, but, um, that was kind of the big break and uh and it was the first nature show on to meet kind of like the mtv generation ever um it was right about that time actually is when steve Irwin came out and he came out on animal planet and so we were kind of both at that same flight that same launch you uh
0: I did want to ask you a few things about Steve Irwin later but we can we'll hold off on that. Um so with Going Wild, so you you've been you've been working on this just trying to learn every aspect that you could about the business, getting experience with voiceovers, getting into movies. But but you still had this goal of creating your own show and um Correct. it was wildly popular. I I watched it many times and one thing I remember this is a little side but each of the shows you were kind of working towards this like uh, like a feature creature creature feature exactly and and, and so how did that come about is that something you did you kind of select the the it, feature creature first and build the show around that or
1: it, vice it versa yeah and we always we always had these these things it was always like anything the curse of anything good is you take that one thing that people like and you do it to death till they don't like it anymore. So like, for example, we had what's in the menu. So I'd have to eat something from that region because everyone just loved this thing where I showed how to eat termites. And so that turned it, every sago worms in Borneo or blood porridge with the Maasai, every show had to have that what's in the menu. So it was kind of a travel journey. You would find these creatures and along the way and it would lead to that payoff creature that we were shooting for. And so I would literally go back this was back of the day. I would go scout all the locations, work with the people to do the animals, do all the research um, and you know, and we had a team of folks but this was kind of new. People weren't really doing this. So uh and then we'd go down and shoot it. Uh, eventually it be, I became too busy, and it, the travel was too much, and my my um, my persona had grown to the point and I just couldn't do that anymore. And we had people that could do that. Um, but we kind of created that template. But from those that very early time till now, it was never, ever scripted, and that was very important to me. And as you know, one things that we work together, I don't use a script. I just kind of, in my brain, I model what I think the story will be and begin to put it together and try to go in with a lot of information in my head to be able to work with that.
0: Yeah, no, I I would say <sighs> that having now filmed a little bit with you it's pretty amazing to see. You literally there was not never a script, never any type of prompt. This was all you taking information, digesting, synthesizing and then
1: communicating it. So it was it's quite a skill. And as you know, when you have a lifetime of doing this stuff, you store that information. And I have a, a bit you know, for all the things I'm not talented at innately. I do have a natural connection to, um, solving the taxonomic Rubik's cube in my brain. Um, you know, uh, so many, I'm, I'm not a mechanical person. There's so many things I'm not good at, but like I can, I mean, there was a time I knew every scientific name of every reptile that you could ever think of, and I, I had, a, I loved cladistics and taxonomy. And still to this day, like it'll just come out. I didn't even know that word was still there, and I even <laughs> might not, might not have thought about that animal for, you know, for twenty years, and it just it, that stuff just kind of pops in there. But that was always kind of the goal was to make it feel authentic. And to me, if I had a script, it wouldn't feel authentic
0: any are there any like particular memories or say feature creatures from that first you know going wild with jeff corwin series that that are snake specific that that you know really stand out in your mind
1: so i'm trying to think so you know way back then i'm i'm trying to think what would have been Sort of the cool reptile moments. And, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, as that series grew, it quickly, very quickly became a not a reptile. It was kind of like for the first year, year and a half, it was almost all reptiles. But I think probably um, going to Africa and because I had been to Central and South America. And so I had found like, I'd, found anacondas and I'd seen a lot of cool critters in Central and South America, but to see like my first puff adder or to find a wild, um, King Cobra in Thailand was, you know, that was like Nirvana for me or seeing my first wild sea crate, um, in, in, um, Palau or Micronesia, you know, for me, that was, I would get so excited to, or, you know, going through the, and actually it was really in the next series where I really got to get into that, where animal planet was just like, you go have fun with your snakes and and tell that story. And that's where I really got to really uh, explore that part of me, but, you know, probably getting into Asia and Africa and seeing those really cool, you know, my first wild reticulated Python or, going to going to australia and seeing all the cool herps in australia um you know the cool cool different types of skinks and and uh all all the really neat elapids that they have over there was pretty awesome
0: i just wanted to take a break and tell everyone about vision products They make dependable and durable products for reptiles and rodents, from cages, racks and tubs, to bowls and hides. We've been using their cages at our headquarters to house our educational reptiles for over a decade. They're easy to clean, easy to use, and they are still going strong. Please visit their website at www.visionproducts.us and follow them on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Pinterest. Wonder North Georgia is
1: a locally owned outdoor store in the heart of North Georgia, and as a family-run small business, conservation is one of the four values that guide and shape what we do around here. We are proud to support the work of Dr. Jenkins and his entire team at the Orient Society, who are doing the good work of protecting ecosystems and habitats for some of our favorite wildlife. To learn more about our small business and how we're able to support groups like the Orient Society, please visit wondernorthgeorgiacom slash 1%.
0: Yeah, well I want to transition to that next big series that you talk about. So Going Wild that aired for
1: what three or four years, somewhere in there. Yeah. And it was and it basically was they 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 used that to rebrand and relaunch the network. And then they started to switch into more of girl band, boy band type stuff. And I knew I knew the nails were coming from my coffin when I had to do a commercial with Ray J, a rapper. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this is going south fast. Uh, so and- so we, so
0: you end up transitioning and uh to Animal Planet. And I want to hear a little bit about the the genesis of that and how uh the Jeff Corrin experience came together. And again, as you mentioned, you were able to really incorporate a lot of Uh, kind of reptile and snake content. Um, One thing I noticed over the years uh, on your various series, and this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but it, it seems like as you've aged, and, and as your shows, you have you've done uh, different shows over time. The the almost the target audience for the shows became uh, slightly like older demographic. Like Going Wild seemed very geared to a really young demographic. Don't get me wrong; all of them are are yeah. I think widely uh, you know have a broad target. But you know the way I remember the Jeff Corwin experience, and then even. Uh, your more recent show, like say the um, ocean treks are, uh, you know, maybe geared a little bit towards an older audience. Was that intentional or am I completely off base there? Is that not how it you just,
1: so yeah, no, I think there's some truth to that. I think with um, going wild, it was really focused on a family youth audience family. They wanted a family. They wanted, they, their dream was to have the family watch that. That was the demo they wanted, but it, it was targeted more to a younger audience transitioning from animal planet. So i got, I had been pitched to animal planet early on when animal planet was working on its brand. Um, They wanted to have some American talent and, but they were an adult audience or like a young adult audience. So when they first, I got first pitched to them, they were like, oh yeah, we, we really like him, but he's too, he, he, he's comes across in his delivery is too, too young to, he's trying to reach a young, we, we're looking for that adult audience. So someone had um, the chutzpah to give them the outtake reel of all the jokes of all the crazy things we did on the side, the, you know, all the fun stuff that, the and they loved that, and they said that's what we want. We want this to be an experience and they said we're going to call this the jeff Korn experience we We want it to be unscripted, but we don't want it to feel f- formulaic. We love your love for movies and to so for a while, like every episode had the feeling of a movie, whether it was Jaws or Deliverance, or of course we're in Louisiana we're like let's make this all about deliverance you know <laughs> you, so you um, realize, jeff i you know, i
0: I live in the county where deliverance was filmed, so
1: I well, there you go. So I think we got it right. Um, and uh, and or we did you know, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now, we just and and people really loved it. And when it first came out, I think the audience was kind of like, what is this? And then it very quickly built not only a big US audience, built a really big international audience, and it started to have like a pop cultural. Breakthrough, like my, I'd be in a cartoon in the New Yorker, you know, a joke about me in in the New York, or a, or you know, you'd make like these, you know, pop cultural magazines like People Magazine or all these other things, and um, then you'd be in like fictional TV shows and want you in it, like I was in CSI Miami and. And uh, a lot of, other, and, and that to me was interesting is to see how it really resonated that people really enjoyed that and liked that. Um, and, you know, it was like for six years, which is a pretty long run for a television series. Inevitably, it's when they want to change it to make it better is when they kill it. It's mm. like, they're like, oh, it's doing so good. Now we want to really change it up. We're going to get rid of the American production company. We're going to bring in a British production company and um, we're gonna make it big, you know, bigger production value. So you won't be able to, you know, fly by the seat of your pants like you normally do. We needed a little, not merely scripted, but it needs to be more, have a stronger treatment. And and that was kind of when that's when it transitioned from the Jeff Corwin experience to Corwin's Quest. And it, you know, everyone thought Corwin's Quest was going to be huge. But people wanted the experience. They didn't want this formulaic, like, begin one sentence in in South America and then end it in um, in Namibia with this really overly complicated plot. Um, and and so it was kind of interesting. The pure, real, raw adventure stuff is what people loved. So you were able, really, at two
0: different uh, television networks. Uh, You you saw the 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 network, I'll call it itself, transition, and that had big impacts on on both of your shows. It sounds like so uh, interesting to to see. Yeah, well,
1: you know, it 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 was interesting. You know, for Animal Planet and and for Disney, it was. I'll never forget, like seeing the New York Times. I was in the front cover of New York Times for that, for the Disney series. And I thought, wow, this is gonna be big. And, you know, I was would go shoot these shows, you're in remote locations, then you come home, and I still lived in, I lived in Massachusetts. And I knew people were seeing it because I would hear from people or people, my family would watch it. But I didn't have the Disney Channel, um, I didn't watch it. And I remember one time I did this PR event, and they almost had to cancel the event because they didn't have enough security they, they're waiting for me. It was like at a mall in Honolulu and the, the windows were buckling from people. Pre- I was like, holy cow, I couldn't believe it. And <laughs> and when you see those sorts of things resonate and that was very with animal planet, we would do things and, you know, you'd have venues and you get with 10,000 people show up to meet you at the height of its success. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, but you know, success comes and it goes fame comes and it goes it's just that's the one of the things to of surviving this business is you you have to evolve and you have to it's not about ego because you know one minute you're the cat's meow and the next minute you can't get someone to pick up a phone and then something happens and then they call you and say how's it going let's work in this project or something you have to just kind of accept that with this business So last question about the uh,
0: Jeff Corwin experience. So, you know, the reptile and snake oriented content, did you have a a pretty big say in that and and directing the show uh, that way? Or was that kind of something that Animal Planet had, you know, an idea of coming into?
1: Well, they wanted they wanted a lot of reptiles. They loved the reptile stuff because I loved it. Um, and then as the series grows, they want you to focus in. They would do these cool specials like Snake-tacular, where it would be all, you know, a two-hour special on snakes. And, and um, you know, we did a number of really cool projects. Um, we also did projects that were very important to me that they did that, that I thought were very valuable projects but didn't have a, a, a big rating success. Like I, that right around when kitrid started to happen, I did a big documentary global documentary on chytrid fungus and the network got behind it. and No one saw it because people just didn't really care about frogs enough to really generate a big audience. Um, you know, th- there were some things like um, they didn't want it to at all to feel like um, Steve Irwin's program. They wanted it to be very distinctive. They didn't. So we, they made sure that we had very, very uh, independent type programs to appeal to our own audience.
0: Okay, well let's let's move on. The last show I want to talk about, and we won't spend much time at all, but is uh, Ocean Tricks. And that's a relatively recent show. I mean, it, it was on the air even just a handful of years ago, is that right?
1: Yeah, that was a that was a series in ABC, and basically that came so I had a series before that in ABC. Uh, called Ocean Mysteries. And that was an, I loved that show. And that was, you know, we travel, that was the first series focused on oceans since Jacques Cousteau, his programming. And we just traveled around the world and looked at issues of the oceans and marine. And to me, it was so fresh and different. And I got to learn how to, I was always a good scuba diver, but learned to do technical diving and rebreather technology. And we, we had really access to incredible stories. Um, and then that did five years and then went on to the next series, which was, um, uh, which was Ocean Treks. And that was more focused on – it had a nature component, and a, a, but it was more of an adventure nature component. And I've always loved culture and I've loved food. And so they had a, we were able to explore that part of it. And the audience really enjoyed that. Um, and it wasn't my first time. I had, Like I had a series two, for two seasons on Food Network that was all about culture, people, and, and the food that they have. Um, that was called Extreme Cuisine. Um, but um, yeah, Ocean Treks was fun. And uh, it was basically looking at the, the, the cultural connection. Um, And and nature had a component to it, but it wasn't a strong nature conservation series. You know, so similar questions to some of the other uh,
0: series we were talking about. But so again, you make a transition and now you're moving from like a primarily kind of terrestrial ecosystems right. and you're going towards the ocean. And you mentioned that you were an ocean kid, a coastal kid, obviously it was important to you, but, um, how did that transition happen professionally? Is that something you seeked out or is that something that, that they came to you?
1: Well, it was, so I had, I I'd, I basically had left animal planet to, to do and discovery to launch a series on Food Network. I really wanted to explore our connection to food resources. Um, And at the time, the head of program was a big fan of my work and wanted to give it a chance. And at the very beginning, it was very successful. Um, But it became this, it was actually called Extreme Cuisine. And it, then it, it became that sort of find the most extreme thing, and I did not want to do the extreme thing. I wanted to live with the people in the mountains of South America and see their relationship to potatoes. I didn't want to necessarily go. And I and and I had a very a very strict protocol on ethical things. I wouldn't eat anything that I felt was unethical or that didn't was not humane. And that cut out a lot of things you could to eat. So, um and at that time it was during the Gulf oil spill. So, um right before the Gulf oil spill, I NBC produced a documentary based on a book that I had wrote called 100 Heartbeats. It was all about what happens when you're so endangered, there's only 100 of you left as a species. So NBC or MSNBC and NBC um, took on this book that I had written um, that was kind of my dream book. It was my second big book. Um, and it, it was, I really wanted to focus in on endangered species and kind of write the go-to book on the the top. 100 species that have been, in some cases, been reduced to 100 individuals of, le- 100 individuals or less, and to see, you know, where did this happen? Where, how did these animals survive? What happened to the condor? How did we get the bald eagle out of this? You know, uh, and so out of that, I got this documentary series, which I spent a year, um, creating, and uh, and that was, you know, to me a a project that was uh, you know on my wish list. It was my passion project. And that was largely based on a series that I had, a concept I had created and I had shared with CNN. CNN like this was years before that was called Planet in Peril. So Planet in Peril was a project that looked around the world. My idea was you know, there, there's a perfect extinction storm with climate change, habitat loss, pollution, Endangered species, and they're all sort of interconnected, and it's called I, my concept is a planet in peril, and they love the idea. So it was a series that I presented with Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Coop, Cooper. who traveled around the world telling these stories. So I wanted, I, 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 I wanted to find that vehicle into journalism, that sort of hardcore news. I had a tremendous fascination. I felt that was a an incredible tool to share important stories, but it's very hard to break into that. Um, the second attempt was with MSNBC and NBC with Plant in They did the project like gratings. They were like, great. It did pretty good. People liked it. It fit nice. Good luck with the rest of your life. I'm like, that's it. What's next? <laughs> and there wasn't anything next until the Gulf oil spill. When the Gulf oil spill happened, um they uh, it was cbs reached out to me and said hey could would you be would you be embedded down there and to tell the stories of nature and wildlife because of this oil spill and i was like hell yeah and we had incredible stories and there was an opening in the contract and the nbc came back and said come on aboard and let's do that and uh so then i did the those stories for nbc and they were remo- because i had the the acumen as a biologist and as a, as a field work, I, I had access to stories that no one could do. Um, I, could, I, would actually, I actually went through the HAZMAT training program first, and that way I could legally go and be a part of cleaning up a spill, or I was volunteering at the bird center, so I was helping to rescue the birds, so I automatically was a part of these stories. And it did incredibly, incredibly well. And I remember that day when, when Nightly News came down, and it was um, uh, Brian Williams. They said Brian's going to come down. He was going to base this whole episode from your field camp, and they want you to be a big part of that. And I remember thinking, "All right, this is going to be it." And but it never really took off like I wanted to. So I was with them for uh, about a year and would do these. You know, after the oil spill, then branched off to do other stories. But that, you know, the news business is a tough business. So I was an environmental correspondent. You just you come up with an idea and you pitch it, and the producer of that news vehicle will say, "Yeah, let's go do a story on alternative energy." And then it'd be like, everyone watched my story tonight. Like, ah, we had to cut it because Obama was going to give a speech tonight. So you do all these stories, and they. A lot of times they wouldn't make it. It wouldn't be just you. I mean, it, it's basically the survival of the fittest. You would have like 20 journalists competing to get five stories in for that broadcast. So, um, it, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, I love that a lot, but I was ready that that's about the time that ocean mysteries happened. And I was, and so I was kind of like, man, where's this going to go? It's like, it's like, I'm, a, it's like, I'm, I felt like I'm Jimmy from Superman for the daily planet <laughs> competing to get my, my photos into the newspaper. And uh, I got a call from a producer I worked with at was with discovery and animal planet and said, Hey, they're looking for a host for this series for ABC. It's all about oceans. It's all about, would you want to do that? And I was like, Hell yeah! I'm all over that.
0: Excellent, great.
1: So it was kind of like
0: a uh, multiple things coming together. You already had this love and interest in the oceans, and the timing was perfect. And then they had this show, and they were looking for the the host. So it just came together perfect. Well, let's. Uh, I want to transition here as as we uh, bring it in towards the the finish line on this episode. But before we do that, I want to first of all stress. that that I think the role of media and communications is critically important for achieving conservation of anything, including snakes. Right. And, and so, you know, and I think uh, we talked about this a week or two ago that it's, it's even, I think it's that important that within our conservation organization, within the Orient Society, we are now developing a, our communications program is being transformed to a program level. We're not just trying to market. We're not trying to just, advertise for the organization we're we're strategically developing our communication projects and programs to achieve conservation goals and uh, so so anyways I, I think it's it's largely important but to me this is a this is a new some degree, a new arena for me, and so I'd just be curious talking to somebody with a whole career behind them and and a lot ahead ahead of them as well. You know, you're you're working, uh, you know, at, at kind of the tip of the sword in this arena. I mean, what are your thoughts on the role of? We'll just say media communications, whatever you know format that might be. What's your thoughts on their role? in conservation
1: well i think there that um television media uh, digital communication uh, all of this online communication is an incredible way to reach a vast audience and to inspire that audience and it is very much the driving force today as it was with my very first television projects um, the the my my mantra to to get people to explore the world and find their own adventure and to develop a connection to nature is as true today as it was when i was you know 7 8 years old working with critters and going to schools and doing things like that it still drives me to this very day um I believe you can't protect what you don't. It's hard to get people to protect what they don't care about, and they'll never care about it if they don't learn about it. So I look at the series, and I believe my next series, which will be coming out this fall, they reach, they're highly rated shows. We get some of the strongest ratings in that window of programming on Saturdays. And my audience today, the demographic is, is largely a family adult audience. Probably 90% of my audience is adult. A lot of that, more than half that audience is a, is a female viewer between 25 and 55. This is a hugely important demographic. These are the parents that are choosing where to spend their vacation dollars, how they um, connect civically within their communities we have a chance to connect them to nature. And that really is a driving force for me now. And for my current project, which is a double, triple secret project, but we're filming now, um, it's really a celebration of North American wilderness and wildlife and species, Uh, working with an incredible um, uh, NGO partner. And it will be for a major network. And it's kind of the series I, I've always wanted to do. And I, I think because we face so many challenges with conservation, as you know, there are so many different endangered species today, there's a lot of argument that we are, we are the last generation to save wildlife for the next generation. We've already consumed 65% of all our planet's nature, uh, the, the amount of species that are being pushed to the brink of extinction is greater today than when dinosaurs were wiped out 60 million years ago. But yet there is opportunity. But we won't find that opportunity unless people develop a relationship with nature. So my goal for the new series, but I think it's kind of always been there for all my series, is to make that introduction because you can't save what you do not care about. And you'll never care about it if you don't get to learn about it. And that's really the fundamental opportunity that I've always had, but I really look at specifically with this current project, which you had a chance to be a part of recently. And, um, you know, we're coming out of some very dark political days We're we're, cut, we're, we're, we're still intertwined in this pandemic, which we all want to shake off as quickly as we can. But all the problems with our planet, they don't stop species that are being pushed to the brink, they all—they don't magically recover. So the goal of this series is to really be inclusive in our journey as we look at all walks of life from charismatic species to mysterious, underappreciated species like reptiles, for example, which was the focus of what we were doing in Florida to kind of show that this is our chance to rise, And save our natural heritage because if we fail, it will be absolutely catastrophic. And media has a big role in that.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree, and uh, so it sounds like you have uh, some big things on the horizon, and I hope everybody uh, stays tuned and and keeps their eyes out for that. Uh, and you know, it was it was great to be, play a very small part in that, and and I agree. I think it will probably be pretty impactful for conservation. Yeah, I hope
1: I, I think it will, Chris. And the other point I think which I wanted to touch on that I, I kind of slipped my mind there, is that NGOs have a responsibility to engage media and to use tools of communication. And it's always remarkable to me, it's, it's ironic that they, they, they want to have their stories told, but they don't look at necessarily putting the resources there. We've talked about this to tell those stories. The, I, I think today's NGOs that are not only savvy with social media and digital uh, opportunities for communication, but are looking at programming to reach a vast audience. These are the people that will underwrite your projects, that will vote about the issues that you care about, which will be a partner in conservation to help save the species you care about. So I think there is a huge role. It's an undiscovered tapped resource that I think is often overlooked by many nonprofit organizations that is right there for them to use. Um, reasonable and what the cost would be, but can have a huge impact. Well said. And, and
0: as I was talking about earlier, we're trying to position ourselves to, to do good things for snakes and turtles and all these other reptiles uh, using just, just those tools. So uh, great. So Jeff, we've learned so much about uh, you know your uh, past and your career, uh, but I'm curious, uh, you know, what does the future hold? What are you What are you working on now, and and what can people expect to see here in the in the near future?
1: Well, I think probably the most important project of my life uh, is now about to launch. It's uh, it actually came out of COVID, realizing that it's going to be a while before I'm traveling internationally to do nature stories. And I thought, what a wonderful time, what an important time to remind everyone in our country the importance of our national natural heritage. So uh, this is a new series that we're filming. It's called Wildlife Nation. And we're traveling from coast to coast, from New Mexico to Alaska, from the Florida Keys to Central Florida, as you know, indigo snakes, gopher tortoises, bison. We're we're telling the story of American wildlife and the incredible Herculean task it takes to save wildlife and why we all need to connect with our wild heritage now to cherish it, to sustainably celebrate it, and to protect it for the next generation. And that's kind of the, the mission of this series, is to is for Wildlife Nation to build a bridge where people are inspired through tremendous moments of discovery, adventure, and exploration. They realize what we have in our country, what we've almost lost, what we're still fighting to save, but is still quite remarkable, this amazing tableau of nature. This is the genesis of this series. Our partner is um, Defenders of Wildlife, which is a very, very important um, North American Conservation Organization with policy and endangered species and habitat, and we partnered together to share these stories on ABC. So uh, it's kind of a series I've always wanted to make. It reminds me why I love our country so much, and and uh, I think it's going to be an amazing series. And the stories that we did with you are certainly we will, will be a big part of that. The Indigo Snake story and the uh, um, little bit of work we did with the Eastern Diamondbacks.
0: Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that Jeff. I mean, I've I've traveled around the world and um but I still love what we have here in North America. We live in a a pretty amazing place. So, uh you heard it here folks, uh check it out on ABC. Oh, I I said I want to come back to Steve Irwin. So, my question for you is how many times have you been called Steve Irwin on the street or anything
1: like that? Do you- <laughs> well, it's usually, and I never got it because we're so different. We had a different approach and and I'm very lucky. I've been able to film in his facilities and um, they've been very great to me over the years. When I've done Australian stories, they open their doors, especially when they've done a lot of their rescue work. Um, but uh, it's always kind of like people catch themselves doing it and it's too late. They've had the diarrhea of the mouth, and it's usually it's usually Steve Corwin or Jeff Kerwin is kind of what it is. but it's it's um it, it, it's not rare. I think it's someone who probably watched both the shows and loved both the shows because they always say that and they're like I'm not going to do this um, and they literally do what they're exactly not going to do because they're usually nervous and not thinking and i usually just ignore it because they're kind of in the middle of it and you realize they just wish they could take it back but it's already out there so it 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 doesn't it it's never been a real issue for me but yeah, well, there are worse,
0: uh, worse people to be confused with, and I'm sure he would think the same thing if he was
1: alive today. So, yeah, well, he was a, he did—he had—he had certainly had a big impact. He did for sure.
0: Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Let's imagine that we are sitting out on a beach somewhere there in New England, and we've got a we've got a small campfire going, and and uh, we're just we're just telling uh, kind of stories about different adventures we've had around the world. And I want you to tell our audience your best snake story.
1: So, my best, my most favorite snake story, and there's been a lot of them like um uh, over the years. And I one of my favorite things was to go out in the jungle and go look for snakes to film, and still love to do that today. I still go out and look for critters. Um, but we were filming in Venezuela and the Llanos. During the dry season, I was working with this really great team of anaconda biologists. And one of them was a very petite woman who was, she was just amazing with snakes. I'm sure she still is. And um, I had gone out and I found the biggest anaconda of my life. It wasn't the longest anaconda. I named her Monstra. She was probably only 16 feet long, but she was telephone pole fat. I mean, (laughs) their scales were twice as big as your thumbnail scales. And I couldn't believe I found this snake and I was so excited. We were going to film it, but we couldn't film it at that time. So we were going to set it aside. And I had this old chicken coop where I kept the snake in. And of course it got out and I was devastated because this was going to be incredible. And I went out and I found that snake. Like the next day, I actually went back. If you, those things you learn about snakes, I I said, I bet you'll go back to that same, you know, water hyacinth patch. And sure enough, she was there. And then we got to, you know, do it in the moment. And it was awesome. But that that incredible snake, that, and then I found another one that was actually in the middle of, we watched it hunt a tegu, grab the tegu, then swallow the tegu. Mm-hmm. Um, and then found a caiman lizard. It was just this incredible. And then river turtles all just sort of jammed into this. And then, you know, giant anteaters. Just it was because it was a dry season, everything was just so encrusted. And you would literally pull back these big dried patches of, of weed. And you'd see they almost like fossilized, but they were actually breeding balls of anacondas covered with ticks. It was just mm-hmm. so primordial but it was the biggest snake i had ever 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 found um and you know instinctively it was like when i you know once you figured out how to do it i don't advise people to do this but i could do it and i was like i could you know at that time i could catch a 16-foot anaconda by myself i didn't need any help just show me the anaconda and give me a big you know big burlap flower bag and i can get that (laughs) thing done Great, and so I don't know you th- if I'd do that today.
0: <laughs> so you're throwing the burlap bag over the animal's head and then diving on it. I'm assuming.
1: No, I'm mean, you putting the animal in the burlap bag. Oh, That's my okay. snake bag. <laughs> no, I, no, I, none of that stuff. Um, I but and then probably the other snake is finding. I found a fertile once, and you could find the videos in this. This fertile ant was. Um, it was. I wanted it was like seven, eight feet long. Maybe it was this fat, and I remember picking that up, and my hands were shaking. I was exhilarated. I was terrified. I was excited. You know, that was that little six-year-old kid finding his first garter snake, and that to me was, you know, incredible. Again, things I wouldn't necessarily do now because I, I don't get it. That's not the rush I have anymore when I work with these animals. I don't think I've, you know, the last time I actually handled a venomous snake in a way that we used to handle them was milking them for making anti-venom in Costa Rica. And this was a place that actually created that was also the other amazing snake story is when I was a graduate student, I got bitten by a coral snake and almost died from that coral snake bite and had to be flown up by a helicopter and They had to put me on antivenom and I became very, very, very sick. And it took a long time to recover from that. And I actually went back to film at that center a few times and actually met the scientist who put together the Microris diastema. That's the snake that bit me. And he actually remembered my case and didn't put two and two together. That was me that who now had become a relatively well-known figure in that world of snakes. So that was kind of cool. So your so your snake
0: bite was in Central America. Then
1: it was in Belize. Yeah. Ah. Uh, okay. My last day. My last day at the field station got bitten by this coral snake, and wow. I came as close to death as one could get, yeah. to the point that the ambassador actually called my family up to wanted to make plans what to do with my remains, <sighs> but uh, survived, and that was the only time. And since then, I had worked with. I mean, I've worked with all the world's venomous snakes that I can think of for the most part. You name it, I've worked with it, Um, except maybe a few rare little mountain python, uh, vipers and stuff. But, you know, all the Australian snakes, all the Asian snakes, African, you know, black mambas, green mambas. I've done it all, but I've never, ever, ever had a problem since then. Um, But that one time was the big learning lesson that was like, you can't ever let this happen again. Great.
0: Well, uh, thank you, uh, Steve. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. kidding. Um, It's okay, Rick. It's okay, Rick. There you go. Um, anyways, I have, uh, an incredible amount of respect, uh, for what you do and what you've done over the years. And, um, I think there's a, a strong argument to be made by myself and others that, that yeah, you've been, uh, one of the greatest forces for snake conservation. So thank you for that. And thank you for uh, being here
1: today. My pleasure. It's, I still love it and can't wait to, I'm heading off to Alaska, but my big goal is San Francisco garter snakes this winter go. to do a big story in them.
0: Oh, okay. There you go. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more yeah. offline here. Um, so if people are interested in following you, obviously they can go into their favorite search engine and, and type in your name and find a lot of information. But is there one place that, that you would like to direct people towards a website or a particular social media account?
1: Yeah. You know, I go to uh, Facebook, Wild Corwin. Uh, at, that's my portal my handle is wild corwin same thing for instagram but I, I like i you know a lot of my followers are on facebook and i I read everything and uh, so be careful what you say because i I will read it uh, <laughs> and um but um I love to post the stories there and um and yeah so facebook and Instagram both are wild corwin.
0: Well, there you go, everybody. Go on Facebook and Instagram and, and uh, follow Jeff through Wild Corwin. And uh, you heard it here. He uh, definitely reads everything that gets posted there. So, uh, and it's all so, my
1: people say, oh, that's not you writing it. I'm like, yeah, I write everything. There, there you go. It.
0: There you go. Great. Well, um, thanks again, Jeff. No worries. And I just wanted to... Th- Thank our audience and tell everybody to remember, snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.